0: Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. I thank you for braving the rain and for coming out and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. You know, a lot of times uh, the rain, we think about it as being a bad thing, but it is really a truly a reminder that God replenishes the earth and He gives us exactly that which we need and that, that requires sunshine, but it also requires rain. And so we're excited that God has done that and I'm excited to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming worshiping with us and we do that here at ivy creek through singing praises to him and being able to to lift our voices of praise to him we also do it through uh, the voicing of prayers but we we also take time in the service to to focus our attention on god's word and to examine it closely and to see how it applies to our lives and it is to that point that we have come in our services today so i hope that you brought your bibles with you and if you did please take them out and turn with me to the gospel of mark uh, we're going to go back to the gospel of mark chapter two and i sort of feel like the guy who Comes on at the beginning of the TV shows. You know, you may watch the, the series that you see come through there, and then there's always an announcer that comes on at the beginning of that to remind you of what has happened previously on that show so that it brings you up to speed so that you are where you are this episode. You'll know what's going on. And, and, and the reason why that guy has a job is because it's his responsibility to let you know that the episode you're about to watch is connected to the ones that have come before it and is actually going to, to serve to be a connecting piece to the ones that come after it. And so today I feel like it's sort of my responsibility to bring us back to where we have been in the study of, of, of Mark because we took a couple of weeks off. We took Palm Sunday and Easter off from our study of Mark. And so now today we find ourselves back there. And so we're going to be focusing on the, the end of chapter two in the very beginning of of chapter 3 and and this section that we're going to look at today really concludes a a section in which mark has alerted us to the mounting opposition that jesus had begun to face while he was there conducting his ministry in the galilean region this section began all the way back in chapter two and you might recall that first scene there in chapter two was where a paralytic was dropped down right below uh, out of the roof and, and and right in front of jesus at his feet And Jesus, before he even healed the man of his paralysis, pronounced that he was forgiven of his sins. And that caused the scribes and the Pharisees who were in the room at that particular point, they were just shocked and dismayed that Jesus would dare say something like that. In their mind, they're thinking, who is this man who thinks he has the prerogative and the ability to forgive people of their sins? And it was from that scene that we began to see the storm clouds starting to form on the horizon. Then we read and studied about Jesus dining with sinners and 'er ne'er-do-wells, the the, the scum of Jewish society. Jesus went and and had dinner with them. And not only that, but he had called one from among them to become one of his disciples, a tax collector named Levi. And this shocking behavior that Jesus began to demonstrate here really caused the religious elite of his day to question whether or not he could truly be a man of God. From their perspective, no one who was worth his salt, no one who who truly loved the Lord would ever allow themselves to be associated with sinners like that. So their thought was that he obviously could not be a man of God. And then the next thing that we saw was was that Jesus is confronted yet again by the Pharisees because his disciples did not fast. They did not abstain from eating in the way that was common, in the way that others in that area were accustomed to doing. And so the Pharisees criticized Jesus because his disciples were not following the cultural and the religious norms of the day. And therefore, they hold Jesus responsible and they question his nonconformity. And all along, what we see is the storm clouds just continuing to get darker and more ominous. And that brings us to where we are this morning. We find ourselves here in the gospel at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3. And we're going to examine two final acts in this series of Galilean conflicts that Mark tells us about. We're going to read two different incidents in the ministry of Jesus in which he encountered resistance and opposition regarding some things that were done on the Sabbath day. And of course we note that his conflict and his challenge comes once again from the Pharisees, from those rule-obsessed, rule-following, religious establishment of the day. And what we'll notice is that This passage ends with the full-on outbreak of the violent storm that would ultimately end with Jesus being crucified on a cross. So with that introduction that sort of paints for us and catches us back up and and sets the context for where we're going to be this morning, let's begin reading in chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, where we read these words. Now it happened that he, that is Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest? and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man who was there who had a withered hand, so they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and the hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we have it to be able to read for ourselves and to study it, to examine it, to attempt to try to apply it to our lives. And then we thank you that you give it to us and that you give us the means to of carrying out that application to our lives by your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, there's none of us who would ever be able to live obedient lives. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, for for drawing us into the relationship that we have and, and then for empowering us to live a life that will bring glory to Christ. I pray that our time spent in your word this morning will be profitable for us, that it would cause us to really examine our own hearts and examine our own lives in light of the truth of your word that is revealed to us. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now I mentioned to you earlier that the storm clouds had begun to gather at the beginning of chapter 2 and then as we just read in chapter 3 verse 6, the storm is in full rage. According to the Pharisees, Jesus had become no longer someone just to be opposed, no longer someone just to be challenged. Rather, he had become someone to be destroyed. And the context of the plot here to destroy Jesus, really the the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back, we might say, really is on the fact of two successive occasions Jesus had allowed or he had done something on the Sabbath that was considered breaking the Sabbath law. And we, what we recognize is that such a hostile response to Jesus tells us just how important the Sabbath day was to the Jews and particularly how important it was to the Pharisees. Otherwise, they would have never had such a visceral response to Jesus to begin with. But even at a deeper level than that, it's not just an examination of how important the Sabbath was and their interpretation of it to the Pharisees, but at a deeper level what we will also learn from this text this morning is just how important the Sabbath is or at least how important it should be to all of us. Of course you'll remember that the fourth commandment involves the Sabbath. It was given by God through Moses to the children of Israel there in Exodus chapter 20. It's the longest commandment actually of the 10 that we are given there, and it reads this way. and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, again, that is how God gave the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy to the children of Israel through Moses. But what we learn is that by the time of the New Testament, by the time that we read what we read here in Mark's gospel, the Pharisees had taken it upon themselves to make sure that they and the rest of the people of God could never even get close to breaking that commandment. And the way that they did it was that they put a hedge of protection around that commandment. And inside that hedge that they put around the commandment, they had 39 additional rules and regulations that they added to it. And it was those 39 additional rules that really said what you could do and more importantly what they said you could not do on the Sabbath day that they deemed to be the ability that they had to protect the commandment itself from ever being broken. In the process, they set themselves up as the Sabbath police. The Pharisees deemed themselves to be the one who could look at what people were doing and could determine whether or not they had encroached upon their man-made rules. And then they had the ability to reprimand the violators and bring them into line. And that's exactly what we see taking place here at the end of chapter 2. Mark tells us that Jesus' and his disciples, they are out walking on the Sabbath and they're walking through a grain field. We're not told why they're in a grain field. Most likely it was because they were traveling from one spot to another and they just happened to have to cross through there and it was probably about time for, for lunch or something along that way because the disciples get hungry. And as they are walking through the grain field, they, the disciples take some of the grain from the stalk, they put it in their hands... They rub it together like this, and by doing that, it would separate the kernel of grain from the outer husk. When that happened, they would then blow and blow the chaff away from the kernels so that the kernel of wheat would then remain in their hands. And then they would take the kernel of wheat and they would put it in their mouth and eat it. That's what they began to do. Now, what happens at that point is that You see things begin to take place. Suddenly, the Sabbath police, the Pharisees are there. Now, we might want to know why are the Pharisees in a grain field on the Sabbath? This is something interesting that Craig Keener brings out in his commentary. He says it's not really uncommon for people to have been walking in in the grain fields. What's uncommon is the fact that the Pharisees would have been there. He notes this. He says not many Pharisees lived in the area of Galilee to begin with. But it was even more uncommon to note that Pharisees would have been in a grain field, and specifically to have been in a grain field on the Sabbath day. So obviously what we come across here is something that the Pharisees were probably following Jesus, following the disciples. They're looking. They've got their binoculars out trying to find Jesus or his disciples break one of those rules. And that tells us as much about the Pharisees probably as anything else. So here they see these disciples rub these grains in their hand and begin to eat. And suddenly, I couldn't help as I was studying this this week, all I could think of was Barney Fife. (laughs) I could just see him just sitting on a stakeout. And suddenly he sees somebody breaking a rule and he comes out, Citizens Arrest! Citizens Arrest! Well, I guess that was actually Goober that did that. But nonetheless, I can just see the Barney Fife character come out. Now, Understand, though, the Pharisees didn't find this humorous at all. No, they accused these disciples of being lawbreakers. But here's the important point that we need to know. They were lawbreakers because they did not, they did not follow the extra-biblical rules that the Pharisees had come up with. Philip Graham Reichen notes this. He said, by picking some heads of grain, the Pharisees no doubt believed that disciples were, were guilty of reaping the harvest. He says by rubbing them together in their hands and separating the wheat from the chaff, they were no doubt considered guilty of threshing and winnowing. And then by actually eating the grain, they were considered to be guilty of preparing food on the Sabbath. So as Rikin states, with every mouthful, the disciples were violating the law in four different ways. That is at least according to the Pharisees. Now... They asked Jesus, why do your disciples do what they do, holding Jesus responsible for, their, for his disciples' actions? And Jesus could have responded in any number of ways. He could have called them a bunch of legalistic nitpickers, which they were. He could have argued with them about the technicality of the law, which he could have. But instead, what he did is he pointed them back to an example from the Old Testament, an example of King David. When what Jesus says is he reminds them that David, once he had been anointed king, but before he had actually been installed on the throne, King Saul was still the ruler in the area. At that particular time, David and his men were were running and trying to escape in Israel. You see, they had a very real threat on their life, worried that they might be killed by King Saul. And it was in the process of them running from from King Saul and from his his outpouring of hate that they all became very hungry. In fact, they became famished. And it was during this time that David recalled that in the tabernacle, there were 12 loaves of bread that were baked on a weekly basis and set out on a golden table. And that was the show bread. It was the consecrated bread. It was bread that was there to be intended to be eaten only by the priests. But David and his men were famished, and so they they go to the tabernacle and to the high priest, and the high priest then gives them that bread to eat, an act which technically was a violation of the ceremonial law. But as the high priest determined, it was the right thing to do under the circumstances because it helped someone in need. Even more so, the bread was going to be used to feed God's anointed king. What better way could there be a use for that bread, that consecrated bread, than to be given to God's anointed king? Now, having reminded the Pharisees of that event, then Jesus has set them up for the profound statements that he makes in verses 27 and 28, because there he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says this, therefore the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it's here that I think that Jesus really reorients us to the true understanding and the true purpose of the Sabbath. And he does that by by making us understand the origin of it. Remember that the fourth commandment when it was given was was rooted in the fact that God created the earth and everything in it in six days. And then it says on the seventh day he rested. In fact, Genesis 2 verses 2 and 3 says this On the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and He sanctified it, because in it, He rested from all the work which God had created and made. In other words, the origin of the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation, when God created everything, and then on the seventh day, He rested. Now, here's an interesting question. When it says that He rested, does that mean that God got tired? Does it mean that he got exhausted from all of that labor from those six other days? Was it like I was yesterday afternoon after I finished doing my yard work that I just had to go in and just lay out on the, on the couch and just try to... Is that, is that what the seventh day is all about? No. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get exhausted. He doesn't run out of energy. His creativity doesn't need to be recharged. So what does it mean when it says that he rested on the seventh day? Well, I really like how John Piper has explained it in his writing on this passage. He he writes that when the Bible says that God rested, it means that he was satisfied with the work of creation and that it was complete and that it was very good. His rest means that he wanted to now stand back, as it were, in leisure and to savor the beauty and the completeness of his creative work. Piper goes on to to assert that this is also the reason why God gave and prescribed such a day to us as humans. You see, by giving the Sabbath to us, in effect, what God says is, He says, let my highest creature, the one who is made in my image, stop every seven days and commemorate with me the fact that I am the creator who has done all of this. Let him stop working and focus on me that I am the source of all that he has. I am the fountain of blessing. I have made the very hands and the mind with which he works. Let one day out of seven demonstrate that all land and all animals and all raw materials and all breath and strength and thought and emotion and everything come from me. Let man look to me in leisure one day out of seven for the blessing that is so elusive in the affairs of this world. Brothers and sisters, I believe that that is an excellent way to understand the purpose of the Sabbath and the real blessing that it is that God has given it to us. I think that's why Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around, not man for the Sabbath. And it's God's gift to us. As such, J.C. Ryle has commented that the Sabbath was never meant to be so enforced as to be an injury to man's health or to interfere with life's necessities. God's original intent was not to cause harm to a person nor to prevent acts of mercy and kindness. But in seeing their intense desire to justify themselves and follow rules and regulations, the Pharisees, well, they had gotten everything completely backwards and turned upside down. They had turned a day of observing and reflecting on God's grace and salvation. A day of of rest and remembrance. They had turned that into a day of legalistic rules and regulations. So understanding what Jesus says here concerning the Sabbath, we might summarize it this way. Notice the first point on your outline this morning. The first point is this. The Sabbath was given to humanity as a day of rest, remembrance, reveling in the grace of God not as a burden, a bother, or as a means to browbeat others. When you begin to think about it that way, you really begin to understand the two very polar opposite views of the Sabbath that have come to the fore in this passage. And you can see just how far the idea of the Sabbath had degenerated. That brings us to the end of chapter 2, and then we begin chapter 3. And what we might think when we get to chapter 3 in this second incident is that somehow or another Jesus on the same day went to the Sabbath. But when we read the the parallel passages and we come to Luke's gospel, we recognize that what we read in chapter 3, all of the events there happened on a completely different Sabbath day, not the same as we were just reading about in chapter 2. And so on a completely different Sabbath day, we notice that the Sabbath police are still out. They've still got their binoculars and they're still watching. They are waiting for Jesus to do something wrong. What we see is that they're waiting to see if he's going to heal a man who's got a withered hand, a man whose arm had been atrophied to the point where he could not use it. Once again, what we're doing here is we're faced with the nitpicky and harsh rules that are placed upon people by these Pharisees. The extra biblical law of the Pharisees said this, that medical attention could be given to someone who needed it only in the event that that person was in danger of losing their life. You could provide medical attention to someone on the Sabbath if that person's life was in jeopardy. However, if the person's life was not in danger, medical assistance would have to wait until the next day. That was the rules of the Sabbath. And so now they're sitting here because here they've got a man who's got a a withered hand coming into the the synagogue. Jesus is going to be there. They know the kind of man that Jesus is. He's displayed it more and more and more and more that he's a man who's willing to forgive. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so here's this this man with a withered hand going into the synagogue and the Pharisees are watching. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Jesus sees the man. He says, step forward. And I just wonder, I wonder how this man would have felt. I wonder if he really wondered in his heart, I don't know if I really want to be in the middle of all of this right here when everybody, all these storm clouds are, are forming. But nevertheless, Jesus calls him to the center of attention and then he looks around at the room and he asks this question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life, or to kill it. Now, the point of Jesus' question really couldn't be plainer. His point is that at the very least, the Sabbath is a day for doing good. At the very least, it is a day for showing mercy and loving kindness, for being a blessing to others. For the Pharisees, however, the day was all about rules and regulations, dotting I's and crossing T's. It was all about what could be done and more importantly about what could not be done. And their myopic view of of maintaining their own righteousness through legalistic rule following had really prevented them from recognizing that godliness is more. it's, It's more than just simply staying away from or abstaining from certain activities on the Sabbath. Rather, it's about having a heart for people. It's about having a heart for people who are in need and trying to be a blessing to them. And what better way to be a blessing than to heal a man whose hand had become so atrophied that it was of no use to him any longer? Now, Jesus asked that question, which is is lawful for a person to do? And nobody answered. It was complete silence in the room. And the Bible says there that Jesus was angered. And why was he angered? He was angered because he realized that their hearts had become so hardened that they could no longer see the truth. Now, Jesus didn't mistake their silence as to being consent that would have allowed him to heal the man, but nevertheless, he tells the man, "Stretch out your hand." And as soon as the man did, the entire room witnessed the fact that his hand was completely healed. It was as whole as his other hand had been. And so here's where we see the second point that I want you to notice on your outline this morning. The second point is this. The Sabbath was given to humanity as a day to do good, to extend grace, to give to others, not to provoke, not to nitpick, not to plot against others. You see, here again, we're we're confronted with the vast chasm that exists between how Jesus looked at the the Sabbath and how these Pharisees, these self-righteous rule followers, looked at it. But I want to highlight for you that last P in that point. It's the fact that the Pharisees began to plot against Jesus. I remind you that verse 6 tells us that immediately after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, Mark says that the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I want you to consider this question for just a moment. Just, just reading this passage, just think about this. Which is better, to heal a man on the Sabbath or to promote hatred and plot murder? I really like how Riken has written this part. He says, ironically, in their fanatical hatred, the Pharisees were really the ones who were breaking the Sabbath. Because they were committing murder in their hearts. Rather than preserving life on the Sabbath, they were starting to look for a way to take it. And that really begins to point to us to the, how hard their hearts actually had become. And the irony of ironies is, is that they wanted to partner up with the Herodians to do it. The Herodians were people who by their very name tell us that they were loyal to Herod. And they were loyal to the Romans who ruled over Palestine. And so under no other circumstances can we imagine that the Pharisees and the Herodians would ever come together in harmony over any issue except in this case to see Jesus completely destroyed. Is it any wonder that Jesus then is grieved over the hardness of their hearts? So that sort of brings us to the end of the exposition of this text. And my guess is is that some of you have been thinking through this process and you're wondering, well, so what in the world does all of that have to do with us today? And I'm so glad that you asked me that question. I mean, after all, our world today is really very, very different from the first century Jewish world. In fact, it's so different that when we come to passages like this, we may often have a hard time recognizing its importance, and its effect upon our lives. But I would say this to you. I would first of all say to you that we must recognize that a Sabbath observance is still very important for each and every one of us today. There are some in the Christian circles today who have attempted to downplay the importance of the observance of the Sabbath. But we should remember that God instituted this observance all the way back at the beginning of creation. Therefore, we must recognize that its meaning and its significance its not been nullified or abrogated in our lives. And to that end, we should remind ourselves that the purpose of the Sabbath observance is really to stop the regular flow of our lives to remember that we are created by God and that we bear His image. We should remind ourselves that all blessings flow into our lives from His creative hands. Every good and perfect gift that comes into our lives originates with God the Father. A failure to remember that will inevitably lead us to the false belief that we are the masters of our own fate and that we are the ones who actually create our own destinies. And brothers and sisters, whenever we do that, we run afoul of what the Bible tells us from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. We should also remember that the Sabbath was given as a specific observance to the children of Israel. In fact, when in Deuteronomy, Moses sat down to write down the law for a second time, and this time it was given to those generation of Israelites that had lived their entire lives out in the the desert, wandering around, waiting to go into the promised land. When when Moses sat down to write that second giving of the law, he expanded on much of what had been given originally so that they would understand the purpose behind the law. And so to the the law of, of observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy, Moses adds this in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. He says, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, and therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What that means is that the Sabbath was there to remind the children of Israel that God was their Savior. He was their Deliverer. He had delivered them from their slavery and from their bondage. And therefore, whenever they stopped their normal activity of life every seven days, they were to reflect on that fact. They were to remind themselves that their salvation came because of God's grace. Christians, as Christians, we do the exact same thing. That's why we gather here every Lord's Day. We don't gather together on Saturday. We gather together on the first day of the week because that is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as his people, that's why we gather together on Sunday. But whenever we do, we remind ourselves that it is because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection that we are able to know that our salvation has been secured. He delivered us from death and from bondage to sin, and therefore we recognize the necessity of stopping the regular flow of our lives to remind ourselves of His sacrifice and our absolute, absolute allegiance to Him. Finally, Moses told the children of Israel that the Sabbath was to be a sign for them in this way. In Exodus 31, verse 13, he says, Speak, always, speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep For it is a sign between me and you throughout all generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, to be sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated for God's service. And certainly Israel was chosen by God to be the nation out of whom the the Messiah would be born. The Savior who would come and, and extend salvation to all nations. And now that Jesus has come, we who have placed our faith in Him, we've also been set apart. We've been sanctified as His hands and His feet to take the gospel, to take the good news of what Jesus came to provide sinners like us, to take that into all the nations, into all the worlds, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we too, whenever we gather together to observe the Sabbath, we remember... That he has given us a wonderful ministry, a ministry that he sanctifies us. Now, in light of all of that, do you think there was any way that the Pharisees could have had their focus on the right things, the way that God intended for it to be? Could they have been thinking about things in that way and then come to the conclusion that Jesus needed to be murdered? Certainly not. You see, for them, the observance of the Sabbath was a way of exalting themselves. It was a way of displaying their own righteousness through following their man-made rules and regulations. And it was to do that rather than to glorify God for the fact that He had done something for them for which they could not do for themselves. Brothers and sisters, their response to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, stands as a warning to each and every one of us. See, it reminds us that whenever our focus drifts from the one who creates us, who saves us, and who sanctifies us, we will inevitably focus our attention on ourselves and our own self-righteousness. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The Sabbath is God's gift of love that reminds us that our work neither creates, saves, nor sanctifies us, but that all of these blessings are accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. I wonder if you have truly thought through those concepts. Have you truly considered that Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is the one who created you? That He has come to save you by giving His life as a ransom, to give His life in your place? I wonder if you've truly thought about the fact that you cannot attain your own salvation on the basis of your own work and your own effort. If you haven't truly considered that fact, I hope that today will be the day that you will stop and that you will reflect on that truth. Because the same Jesus who healed this man with a withered hand, a man who, by the way, could not heal himself, is the same Jesus who offers you spiritual healing today you who cannot heal yourself he offers to save you from the penalty of your sins and to give you eternal life and he accomplished all that was necessary to save you through his death and through his resurrection the question is will you trust him will you place your faith in him today and receive his salvation perhaps you have and you would testify to me that brother i am a i am a believer Well, then the question is, have you stopped to reflect on the fact that the Lord Jesus has saved you in order to set you apart? In doing so, He's given you a ministry of reconciliation. He's given you a ministry of telling others about this saving love, of doing good for others, of extending grace to them. You know, I often wonder how many times we as believers truly stop and contemplate the wonders of God's amazing love for us through Christ and that those result, that should result in love being produced in our lives toward others. Do we truly stop and reflect upon that? Or do we just simply try to cram all of that into our busy schedules, making it simply one more thing that we need to check off the list? Brothers and sisters, understand that this was not the purpose of the Sabbath. And nor was it how God intended for things to be. He intended for us to savor His salvation, to remember it, to reflect on it, to revel in it, to rejoice in it. We must let the example of the Pharisees be a warning to us, but even more so, we must let the gospel of Jesus and the salvation that is ours through Him Draw us into a Sabbath worship of him. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.